taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics while taking Christian truth in the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. And this is uh, coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, and Roland, Montana. And uh, we'll bring to you the word of the Lord. And this is coming from John chapter 1, verse 29. It says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, Curtis, do you know the song playing? Oh man, I want to say I, for whatever reason I got Frazier stuck in my head, but I know that's not right. Um, I I can't call it out. <laughs> that's all right. It's Taxi. It's the show from seventies and eighties. Oh, taxi. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 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 Taxi. Yeah. I was just, it can't be WKRP in Cincinnati because I remember that one pretty well. So. <laughs> that may be one but coming taxi. up. Yeah. 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 I remember that now. You got the little yellow cab yep. going down in uh, across the yep. bridge there in New York City. Yep. <laughs> yep, totally. Yeah. Well, hey, you know we're getting into this uh, the episode uh, nineteen. Can you believe that episode nineteen already? It's hard to in, believe in our in our in our fifth series. So we're in the part seven, the extent of the atonement. But I want to take a second here, real quick, and I want to thank the listeners. Um. For, for spreading this podcast out across the world. It is unbelievable that, that we've got listeners, we've got viewers that are reading, that are engaging with Bellator Christie. We've got, it is just, it's mind-blowing the engagement that we get that is worldwide. I mean, like, like, I, like I said in our text, when you sent me that, I'm like, I can't even imagine that people would list, listen past our past our own neighborhoods. <laughs> you know, just a couple couple good old boys up here doing this. You know, but hey, gum. You know, it's 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 impressive. So, I do want to ask our listeners to please pray for the ministry. Pray pray for all the people involved in the ministry. And if you happen to know the names, that's fine. If you don't, God knows them. Just pray that everything. Um, keeps pointing towards him and and just keeps drawing people's attention and and uh helping maybe answer the tough questions that need to be answered and that's really what we're out here for is to to really help and you know what i'll be honest with you there's there's things where the articles are answering questions that i've been like hmm, yeah, yeah i've had that kind of question before and it's just good stuff it really is it's good good content so and, yeah. and batting down the hatches, we've got some good articles on Q waiting to be published. That's it's, it's amazing. So just just wait here. Coming up in the next few weeks, we've got some uh, some <laughs> other good ones uh, that's about to be that's about to drop on BellatorChristie.com. <laughs> that's good stuff. So we're going to talk about the atonement, and the extent of the atonement. So let's just go ahead and jump in. And say, when we talk about the extent of Christ's atoning work, 
What do we mean and what are we implying? So here, thus far, we've been talking about um, different theories on the atonement. We were talking about uh, the virgin birth of Christ, what the incarnation means, what who Jesus was. Um, here we're talking about, well, actually two questions. For whom did Christ die? Did, did Christ die only for a few people? Did he, did he die for the world? Uh, and if he died for the world, does that mean everybody's going to be saved? Or what does exactly does that mean? So, so that's the first big question. And quite honestly, this is going to take up um, probably 80-90% of our podcast, this one question alone. And the second question is, for what did Christ die? Uh, was it to deliver us from sins only? Was it just completely so soteriological uh, in, in the sense of being a spiritual salvation? Or does this also involve the salvation of of the body in some sense? Is there, is there a holistic means to Christ's atoning work? And that's a question... Um, that's also in, uh, that's found in this in this uh, conversation. So, in, when we talk about this, we're going to find that this really cuts between bone and marrow between the different uh, soteriological viewpoints uh, from from Calvinist viewpoints and non-Calvinist viewpoints. Uh, especially when you involve the the type of atonement and, and its involvement in election, this is where this situation and issue can get really sticky, uh, really quickly. And so, um, but that's that's what we mean by the extent of Christ's atonement. For whom did Christ die, and for what purpose did he die? Hmm. Yeah. So what uh, what do we have there for for evidence of it then? Well, you know, there's going to be different viewpoints that we'll look at who's okay. just going to present different kind of evidences for that, for their particular views, and so we'll kind of go through that as we as we progress through the podcast. Okay. All right. Yeah, so what are those three views that discuss the extent of Christ's atonement, and for what do they argue? So, so that's kind of a big one right there. Yeah, this is a big one. So we're just going to kind of lay out the groundwork here. Um, and really, technically speaking, there's probably more likely four views. And um, so the first view is called particular and limited or a limited atonement. Particular or limited atonement. In, in Baptist circles, uh, there's, there's a division between types of Baptists, between particular Baptists and general Baptists, or general or free will Baptists. Uh, they're called particular because they emphasize a particular atonement, that it's for a particular group of people. Same thing with limited atonement. That is to say that Christ only died for the purpose of saving the elect. That his only intention in doing that, his only intention for the uh, for the, his death was for the elect of God. Whoever God chose to save, that would be who the atonement was for. 
for those particular individuals. The second group is called the general or universal atonement. I like the word general atonement a little bit better because it's going to because there's another group that that uses the word universal, as you'll see in a minute, that can also they can kind of get a little conflated with this this position. This means that uh, the right. general view is that Christ died so that all could be saved. So. The, his salvation was for the, the, the potentiality that, uh, that everybody could be saved. But that doesn't mean that everybody will be saved. And then there's the universalist position, and that is that Christ died so that all will be saved. So universalists believe that everybody's going to heaven because they believe that the blood of Christ atones everyone's sins. And then uh, no matter whether you believe in them or not, you're going to heaven because the, the, the atoning work had that type of impact. But there's a fourth option we're going to talk about as we go through this uh, toward the end of the podcast that Millard Erickson, uh, in, his, in his book Christian Theology Presents, and uh, we're going to give that one uh, t- toward the end. And as we, as you're going to see, there are little quirks to both the first two that we mentioned. Uh, really, in the third one, you know, I think any Orthodox Christian is going to know that there's problems with that one. Uh, but but there's a fourth view I think that actually blends a little bit better, and we'll talk about that here in a few moments. Yeah, yeah. So, what scriptural evidence uh, do particularists? provide to argue their case okay so they are going to argue three different things they're going to say first of all though that christ died for a particular group of people and so i'm going to pull up the first scripture and i'm going to ask uh you curtis if you'll go ahead and turn to john chapter 10 verse 11 we've got several verses there we're going to read in john 10 but i'm going to go ahead and pull up matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 21, Matthew one twenty one, And uh, this passage of Scripture says that she will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his, his people from their sins. And they'll argue that his people is talking about the elect of God, that he didn't say all people, but he was only going to die for his people. And so that's where they argue that... Uh, uh, it's for a particular group of people that Christ died. Let's also take a look at John chapter 10, verse 11. And we'll ask Curtis if you'll pull that one up. John 10, verse 11. Yeah, John 10, verse 11. Um, in the ESV, it says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd laid, lays down his life for the sheep. Okay, there, there again, he's focusing on, or particularists will say, that he is focusing only on the sheep. He's laying down his life only for the sheep. Okay, so now let's take a look at verse 15 of the same chapter. Yeah, so verse 15 says, Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Okay, so you see that same imagery. And let's take a look at uh, verses 26 and 27. So 26 says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So there again, that focus is, particulars will say, the focus is on his people, his sheep. And John fifteen thirteen says, no, greater, uh, no one has greater love than this than to lay down his life for his friends. So there again, there's that emphasis being made on 
a particular group of people. And so particularists will argue that this shows that Christ didn't die for everyone, according to their view, that he only died for a small group of people, and that would be the elect of God, those those who were predestined from eternity past. So that's one of the first arguments they're going to make. I wish people could see the camera here on the Evelo household. <laughs> Curtis is about to lose his mind over here <laughs> with this argument. But let's take a look at the second argument. They say here, we're not going to read Scripture, uh, well, except for one. Uh, Christ, they're going to argue, is limited in his intercessory work. Uh, let's take a look at John 17, verse 9. Uh, John 17, verse 9. You have that for us there, Curtis? Oh, yeah. Yep. It says, <laughs> I am praying for them, and I am not praying for the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So they'll argue there, particulars will argue there, that, uh, that the, even in the high priestly prayer, that Christ isn't praying for everyone. He isn't intending his grace to be for everyone, so the particularist says, uh, but only for those few selected individuals chosen from eternity past. R.B. Cooper. K-U-I-P-E-R, Cooper, I think this is how you say that, argues that John 17, 9 is limited to the elect, and Louis Burkhoff argues that this is the basis of Christ's intercessory work, not for the world, he says, but is limited in its intercessory work only for the elect. So we see Christ died for his people according to particulars. Christ is limited in his intercessory work according to particulars. And finally, they argue that the nature of ransom argues for limited atonement. And Matthew 20, 28 says this, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, they argue there that many is intended only for the elect of God, and they would also say that this uh, limited atonement, this view of a limited atonement, goes back to the times of Augustine. I, I don't know. I mean, Augustine had a form of election that he believed, but he also believed in a form of human freedom, especially in his earlier career. So, you know, I don't know. Uh, some people want to call. It's it's funny because people will use parts of Augustine that they want to argue that Augustine appeals their claim. So, I don't know. Yeah, how everybody s- divides them up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's and and obviously, if you look at Augustine before the whole. Uh, a controversy with Pelagius, then, then that's a whole lot different than it was afterward. But anyhow, this is the basis for which um, the particularists will argue for uh, the, the limited nature of Christ's atonement. And so that's, that's where they build their case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's all I got. <laughs> so what, <laughs> what scriptural evidence do generalists argue then? And notice I didn't say universalists here because universalism, right, right. as we found, is completely different. And and here is yeah. another ad hominem that that many Calvinist theologians will use. They'll they'll call general atonement advocates uh, universalists. And that obviously, anyone who knows anything about non-Calvinist soteriology knows that's not what's being argued at all. Right. So, uh, three points here from for uh, generalists. One is the claim that Christ died for the sins of the world. And so, um, Curtis, we'll have you go to John one twenty nine, and then 
16 and 17. Didn't call that one out, did I? I knew that was coming. <laughs> John, one one twenty five. you said? Uh, one twenty nine. One twenty nine says, The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Hmm. Yeah. And then uh, it's he said 16. Yeah, th- uh, 3, 16, uh, and 17. Okay. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I'm going to cheat. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is already condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Yeah, sorry, I just had to go in and extend that a little bit. No, no, that's that's fine. But you see, now, now the particulars will say, well, everyone or whosoever only means the elect. That's how they do these gymnastics. But listen, if you look at the passage and keep it in context, there's there's no indication of that at all. It's like Second Peter chapter three. I think we're going to read that here a little bit later on. There's no indication at all that that, that he's talking to a particular group of people. It's, it's, it's hermeneutical gymnastics that's being performed. Uh, but So we see here in this case that Christ died for the sins of the world. It's not his desire. He didn't come to condemn the world, but came that the world could be saved. Did you notice the language and how that was worded? Mm-hmm. So that the world mm-hmm. could be saved. Now, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 says, For the love of Christ compels us, since we, we have reached this conclusion that one died for all. How many? Hmm. For all. Oh. And therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live... Now here again, notice the way this is structured. He died for all. Why? So that those who live should no longer live for themselves. Now, he didn't say that everyone was going to live. But he says, For those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Mm-hmm. So that definitely seems to suggest that uh, th- that there's something more going on, that the, that the application or the intention of the atoning work of Christ was more than just for a select group. Let's take a look at 1 Timothy 4.10. Can you get that one for us, Curtis? 1 Timothy uh, ch- chapter 4, verse 10. Uh, yeah. And then I'm going to take a look at Hebrews uh, 2, verse 9. First Timothy Chapter. 4, verse 10. Yes, sir. Okay, that's... For, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Especially of those who believe. Now, did you catch that? Can, can you read that one more time, Curtis? I want that to really sink in. That's a powerful <laughs> yeah, verse. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it says, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hopes set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Wow. 
That's powerful. Hebrews chapter two verse nine says, "But we do see, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for for everyone, <laughs> for everyone, crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death." Now, uh, st- st- how about reading First Timothy two six for us, Curtis? First Timothy two six. I gotta go back just a little bit here. Just a second. Two six on the other page. It says Who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. There again. There again. For all, and all means all in that case. Um, Isaiah chapter 53, when we do a ser- the series on the Messianic prophecies uh, concerning the resurrection, crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, we're, we're going to come back to this one. But look in verse 6. We all like sheep went astray. We all have turned to our own way. And the Lord has punished him, who? The suffering servant, the Messiah of God, punished him for the iniquity of us all. So there again, even prophetically, the, the ministry of Jesus was, was uh, the generalist will claim for everyone. So we see, first of all, the claim that Christ died for the sins of the world, the generalist says. Secondly, some for whom Christ died will perish. And I think we've already got an inclination of this already. But Curtis, I want to have you go to 1 Corinthians 8 verse 11. And I'm going to go, while you're doing that, I'm going to pull up Romans uh, chapter 14 and verse 15. So you have 1 Corinthians 8 11. And I'll go ahead and pull up Romans 14 15 and read that first. Okay, so here again, the argument is that some for whom Christ died will perish. So he's not saying that everyone, generalists are not saying that everyone will be saved, but they're saying that some for whom Christ died will perish. So Romans fourteen fifteen says, For if your brother or sister is hurt by what you eat, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy by what you eat someone for whom Christ died. Don't destroy someone for whom Christ died. Meaning, Christ died so that all people could come to faith. Don't hurt a person. And here again, granted, this might be talking about a brother or sister in Christ. Granted, that might be the case. But even still, uh, that shows the fact that uh, that there, there can be, at least according to the generalist, uh, be some for whom Christ died who may perish. Mm-hmm. So let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 8.11. Yeah, so it says here, and and so by your by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother of whom Christ died. Absolutely. So, and here again in verse uh, Hebrews chapter ten, verse twenty nine says, "How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, mm-hmm. who is regarded as profane, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace?" Now, granted, the the first few verses we read, I could see that being pointed to a Christian brother or sister who's already in, who's already saved. But this one seems to suggest talking about someone who's who's seen the grace of God, uh, who's rejected the grace of God, and so th- they uh, this is a person for whom God for whom Christ died, and they have rejected that grace. Uh, so let's also take a look at Second Peter, chapter two, 
verse 1. 2 Peter chapter 2, mm. verse 1. You have yeah. that for us, Curtis? Yeah. It says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, uh, brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So they're again showing false prophets how people can be led astray. You know that that shows how you know even though Christ died for individuals, there can be people who are led astray in that sense. So this is another one of the arguments that uh, generalists make. So thus far, the the two arguments already on the table: one, Christ died for the sins of the world; two, some for whom Christ died will perish; and then three, the gospel is to be universally proclaimed. So, Curtis, I want to have you read uh, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, and while you're turning there, I'm going to go to Matthew twenty-four, verse fourteen. Twenty-four, verse fourteen, and this says, "This good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come." And so, here we see that uh, the gospel before Christ returns, the gospel needs to be proclaimed into all the world. And that's one of the things that we're trying to do right here on this this podcast um, to proclaim the gospel into the world. So let's take a look at Matthew 28, verse 19. Yeah, and it says here, Jesus' command is given the great commission. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Okay part of the Great Commission. They're to go forth, proclaim the gospel. So here's here's the argument made by the generalists. Why is it so important to get the gospel out there if the if the blood of Christ is only intended for a few select individuals? What's what's the point and purpose of proclaiming it to the world, you know, if that's if that's the case? And that's why in now I'm not gonna Listen, there have been some wonderful Calvinistic evangelists throughout the years. Spurgeon was a Calvinist. Jonathan Edwards was a Calvinist. I, I grant that. But, historically speaking, by and large, more times than not, Calvinists are less evangelistically focused. Not everyone. Okay, this is not everyone. But generally speaking throughout church history, you, you'll notice that a lot of times there's a lack of emphasis on evangelism because if God is going to only save a few, few people who are the elect, then what's the point and purpose of evangelism, global evangelism? Mm-hmm. So um, mm-hmm. Acts 1.8 excuse me, says, uh, and Curtis, I'm going to have you read Acts 17.30. Uh, so I'll, I'll let you go ahead and turn there while I'm reading this. Acts 17.30. Acts one eight says, But you will receive, this is the words of Jesus, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's where they were at home, in all Judea and Samaria, the outer regions of where they were, and to the ends of the earth, uh, talking about global evangelism there as well. So what does Acts 17.30 say? So it says, the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, 31, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
I think that may be the strongest passage of scripture we've read verse yet. Uh, just, uh, yeah. Yet. I'll get yeah. my words out in a minute. Uh, that's what happens when your brain runs faster than your tongue can go. <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's the strongest passage of scripture I do believe that we've read thus far for this argument. Mm-hmm. Um, Titus, uh, I'm going to have you turn to Second Peter 3, 9 there, Curtis. Titus 2, 11 says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all. All people, there again, the gospel message is to go out to all people because there's a potentiality that all people could be saved. Not that everybody will be saved, but all people could be saved. And then we take a look at Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 9. It says, the, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, here again, this has been a passage of Scripture that's been scrutinized greatly by, by uh, particularists, and they'll say, well, the all means the the church it means the people who were the writer who were the readers of the of it so it doesn't mean everybody but that makes no sense in the context of what's being said so for instance look in um he he noticed he mentions uh don't overlook this fact that, uh and he talks about a thousand years as one day to the lord and we have verse right. nine but look before this uh, by the word of the Lord, the, the heavens came into being through the same word. It perished when it was flooded. That's a global mm-hmm. impact that took place. Uh, the day of the Lord is going to come like a thief. Notice it's going to come unexpectedly. On that day, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. Uh, th- that's another global global judgment that's going to come. So you see a past global judgment in the flood. You see a future global judgment uh, coming in the future. And juxtaposed between, or caught in the middle of these uh, of these two uh, past and future judgments, you see that the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but all come to repentance. It makes no sense if it's only talking about the elect of God. Because... His desire will be actualized by everybody coming to repentance if he's only talking about the elect. The whole entire verse makes no sense if you take that approach. So, anyhow, um, it's it's important, folks, to keep verses in the context of the overall passage of Scripture. Um, if you don't take anything else out of that, that's something I think all of us need to remember. But anyhow, those are the yeah. three tenets of uh, the generalist's claim. One, uh, the claim that Christ died for the sins of the world. Two, some for whom Christ died will perish. And three, the gospel is to be universally proclaimed so that all have a chance uh, to hear the gospel and be transformed by the power of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a lot in there that's deep. Uh, you know, and I just kind of wonder how much of it, you know, if we can come at the Scripture without having any view, come at the Scripture blind and just read it and read what it says and process what it says and 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 what do we come up with then? I understand, you know, the, the days and the age and the time that we live in now, it's really hard to not to come at the Scripture with a with a blank. 
uh, blank view and just asking God to just reveal what, you know, and just read the scripture, what's there, and apply it in a way. I know we come at it with hermeneutical structures and things like that, but but I just wonder, I just I just wonder if, if a person were to just take it in and just say, God, you're, 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 you're giving this to me to help me understand what am I seeing here. Yeah, and I I think a better way of I, I see what you're saying. I think the 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 better approach is because obviously we want to use good hermeneutics not only with scripture reading but yep. with, with all reading. Right. I, I think what you probably in pointing and correct me if I'm wrong is if we didn't come with to it with any theological bias uh, pertaining to Calvinism or non-Calvinism yeah. and just see what yeah. the scripture said. And I think if we were to do that, quite honestly. I think that we would come to the conclusion that the generalists make on this in this sense. Because it, to me, it makes absolutely no sense to try to say that it's only talking about the elect. That's pulling in something else far into the passage and is not allowing it. Now, I know there, there are going to be a lot of people who argue with this point. But I think if you look at the passage of what's being said, the global judgments of the past, the global judgments of the future while also remembering Ezekiel 18. Remember, we, we mentioned that a few weeks ago, that how God said it is uh, that he has no pleasure in the, the destruction of the wicked, but had rather people repent. That's talking to all people. Yeah. Everybody would hear the voice of the prophet at that time. And so I think that, quite frankly, Peter may have even been quoting or have had that in mind when he wrote Second uh, Peter chapter three verse nine, uh, because it seems like there's a strong parallel between that and um, the last few verses of Ezekiel chapter eighteen. Interesting. Yes, that's exactly what I was what I was trying to say. Is 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 exactly how you explain that? And um, yeah, I just I just question and wonder that you know um, because new believers when they tackle into the scripture. They sure seem to come at it or come out of it with a, um, with that, with the same understanding that it's all people. If 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 we if we repent, mm-hmm. turn towards God, you know, we we all can be potentially can be. It's when the it's when the the theological bias then comes in once they've been, you know one side or the other that's when they really focus in but i just i just question just wonder um you know um i would i would out of the way i think i would tend to agree with you i think that a plain reading of the scripture would lend itself to to that notion to the very thing that you just Mm -hmm. said so here we go (laughs) let's get into this one (laughs) what scriptural evidence do Universalists provide. Well, now he, here's where the problem comes. Here's where the problem comes. <laughs> or at least the last part of that word. It's kind of kind of you. So, so here's where the problem comes. Whenever again, particularists will 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 come after generalists they'll usually link generalists with universalists. And that's why I didn't use the term universal atonement, even though that's the that's the traditional theological title uh, for the viewpoint. 
universalists will argue a lot similar to what the generalists do, except they won't include number two. Now, remember, number two was said, some for whom Christ died will perish. They don't include that. Right. Uh, they will say that uh, the gospels be universally proclaimed. But then again, if, if everybody's going to be saved, why should it be universally proclaimed? I mean, that's a question yeah. I have. Uh, but but right. the, the, they would really emphasize the power of Christ's atoning death, that that, uh, that that love wins in the end. You know, you've probably heard people say that, Rob Bell and others, I believe. Uh, love wins in the end, that it comes victorious and no one goes to hell. Listen, I, I want to say this. If there was a false doctrine that I wish were true, it would be this one. I, I wish everyone was going to heaven. I really do. I, I don't wish anyone to go to hell. I, you know, because the Bible even tells us that uh, that the de- that that hell was not intended for the devil and his. Uh, excuse me. Hell was not intended for humanity, but it was intended for the devil and his angels for the demons. It wasn't intended for humanity, and so. Um, I really wish it, it was where everybody was going to heaven. But here's the thing. The Bible tells us the Bible's very uh, rational, very logical, very clear. It, it's clear. It, yeah. it tells us that not everybody is going to repent. And just yeah. from our own observation, we can see that there are many people who are going to, on their even on their deathbed, reject the grace of God. And that's why I've said all along, if it's true that Christ died for the sins of the world and everybody can could be saved, I think it is more difficult for a person to go to hell than it is to heaven because you have to consciously resist the grace of God up until the point of death. The loving advances of God, you have to consistently and continuously uh, reject the loving advances of God. And so that's why I think universalism does not really hold a candle. Yeah. Yeah. So what uh what position best suits the biblical evidence then? Well, you know, after reading Millard Erickson, I freshened myself up on on uh, his work and uh, what he had to say about it, looking at a few other theological works. I have to actually agree with Erickson when he says that none of the positions really cover all the biblical evidence. Uh he argues that the best solution is found in a viewpoint argued by Peter Lombard in the Middle Ages, uh, and it goes back to the time of a guy by the name of Prosper of Aquitaine in 460 A.D., and um, I, I'm going to call this view the efficient view of the atonement, uh, and that is that Christ's death was sufficient that all could be saved, but efficient for the redeemed to be saved. So that's not to say that everybody's going to be saved, but it is saying that it's sufficient to provide the power to save everyone who would repent and turn from their sins and receive Christ, but is effective, efficient, to to cleanse the sins of those who repent of their sins and turn to the grace of God, respond to the grace of God. It has a lot in common with the general view of election, quite honestly. Um, it, it probably is has more in common with that than it does the particular viewpoint, but it just makes that nuance to say, uh, it just further clarifies it a bit more to say that uh, the, not everybody in the world is going to be saved uh, but the, the the blood of Christ is sufficient so that everybody could be saved if they would repent. And so you can see uh, that um, 
Actually, P.L. Uh, Rowendahl argues that this was actually the view held by John Calvin. This was actually the view held by John Calvin. It wasn't until Beza, who was a Calvinist of 1588, some 24 years after Calvin's death, uh, who held that the limited atonement position was the Calvinist Calvinist position. Now, whether that's true or not, you know, I think we'll have to do some digging to see what Calvin actually taught. I do think there is uh, a bit of a chasm between some of the things that Calvin taught and some of the things that Calvinists present. Uh, just to be fair, uh, but First uh, Timothy four ten is is a passage of scripture. Let's look at it right quick. First Timothy four ten, chapter four verse ten, and it says this: it "says For this reason we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe." I think you read that earlier, Curtis. Um, and so he's the Savior of all people. But that atoning work is uh, efficient for those individuals who respond to the grace of God. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, does Christ's death only impact the spiritual issues at all? Then, so here's the question, and that's that's a good question. I mean, the is it only spiritual? Some argue that since the fall. Uh, brought sin into the physical world, then Christ's death empowers believers uh, to overcome all sicknesses. Now, obviously, this is where you get into the whole health and wellness gospel, health and wealth gospel, that if you name it, claim it, you know, if you believe that you'll be healed, that you will be healed, but let's be honest, we know that doesn't... Yeah, we know that that doesn't always work. But there is an essence where there is a holistic... uh, Mm-hmm. empowerment found through Christ's death. Um, we see that uh, Christ's death does empower the holistic healing of individuals. And that's not to say that healings can't happen. Of course, Christ can heal even today just as he has in times past. Um, and so we see in Isaiah 53 verse 4, He himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. We see also in verse 12, it says, of the same chapter, Isaiah 53, Therefore I will give him the many as a portion, and he will receive the mightiest spoil, because he willingly submitted to death, and he was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. So here again, there is an aspect where through Christ's sacrificial atonement, he does bring healing uh, to our minds, he brings healing to our, our souls, and then ultimately we see that healing comes in the new creation. So, Curtis, I'm going to have you read. Um, let's have you read Hebrews chapter nine, verse twenty-seven, and I'm going to turn over to Romans chapter eight, right quick. Uh, Romans chapter eight, and I'm going to go through um, nineteen. Uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, but I will read this. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay to the glorious freedom of God's children. Uh, and we see in verse uh, 22 that the creation has been groaning. 
Um, we ourselves, in verse 23, who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And we see that essentially what's going to ultimately come in the new creation is not only the, the rejuvenation, the resurrection of our souls, but we're going to see the resurrection of our bodies, and we're also going to see the resurrection of the creation itself, which came through the atoning work of Christ. So Hebrews nine twenty seven. what you got there, Curtis? Well, 27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so yeah, there's there's the time of judgment. So we die, we face judgment. So, uh, but but we you know we stand before God. We see there. Uh, let's take a look at Second Corinthians twelve. Um, in in Second Corinthians twelve, he talks about the, um, the, the the he talks about this vision he had, this near death experience where he was caught up in the paradise and heard inexpressible words. Um, he says, "Well, I will boast about this person." Uh, but not about myself except for my weaknesses. And he talks about going to the third heaven. So in other words, Christ, his atoning death, frees us to be able to go before the very throne room of God. He frees us to be able to stand before God after we die. And he's going to eventually bring about the resurrection of all creation. So there is an aspect where the atoning work of Christ not only impacts the spiritual dimension of uh, of our salvation it also impacts the physical body we're going to be resurrected one day uh, we know that we're, when we die now we'll be absent from the body present with the lord in that spiritual state until the time of the resurrection we'll be reunited with our bodies we'll be resurrected and then eventually they're going to come forth as we see in revelation 21 and 22 a new heaven and a new earth a new creation that's where creation itself is going to be resurrected. All the universe will be resurrected into something brand new. New laws of physics, absolutely new standard. It's going to be an amazing thing to consider. Amazing thing to witness. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it says, you know, that all this is going to burn up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it says, gave the example, it was once destroyed with water. And now, uh, now it's going to be burned up with fire. So absolutely. So, what can we take away from our discussion here? Then, I think there's four things that we need to. Well, let me first of all ask this, Curtis. Which, which argument do you see uh, before before we even get into this? Which argument do you see as being the strongest, scripturally speaking? <laughs> Well, let's just take one and three out of the place, out of the position. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you know the 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 problem is, and that's why I kind of I kind of uh, fight back on that a little bit. And I understand their view as far as the particulars. I, I understand their view. I get it. I get what they're saying. But I just I just don't see when I'm reading in it. I see in there the scriptures telling telling everyone to turn back, to repent, to you know, to to choose today, to choose God, to um, you know, anyone that would that would stop and turn and repent and turn back to God. You just see that continual picture in the scriptures. 
Amen. And I can't, I can't just, I can't just say, well, then it's only those certain people that turn to God, they're saved. Well, then what about the certain people that are selected by God that don't turn back and save? Yeah. So I, I don't know. I just, I, I, I understand. I get it. I, and there's a lot of good high end thinkers in it, but I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of unnecessary defensiveness that goes into that that really needs to be thought about and understood that other people can look at this and go, you know, I just don't see it. And that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and, and, I, and I do have to say that I think that to hold the particularist viewpoint that you have to do a whole lot of gymnastics. Now, some people will say, now wait a minute, what about those passages that we read where Jesus talks about dying for the sheep and the, pe- the sheep know his voice and things sure. of that nature? Well, sure. that, that's, where, that's where I think that if you hold the, the viewpoint we just argued, that which is much what actually the generalists claim, that, salva- that Christ's death was sufficient for all, but efficient for the elect or efficient for those who respond to the grace of God, then there's really not an issue there. I think if you take all of the scriptures together in total, as, we, as we've presented here, I think you see a good, clear picture that uh, the Christ's death was intended for everyone, but it is applied to those who respond to the call of the gospel. So four things we can say through this. So what do we take from our discussion? Four things. Number one, God's desire is to save everyone. He he loves everyone, and that's the thing that we need to remember. You've probably seen and heard a lot about the debates between James White and Tim Stratton. You know, I haven't made a comment on it. Um, I thought it was a good debate, um, but it goes back. I still have yet to hear. And I didn't hear it in the in the Stratton White debate. I didn't hear it in the White uh, William Lane Craig debate. I still have yet to see, or or to to have a person who holds the particularist viewpoint show how it is that evil is not directly associated with God uh, in that sense. And because it seems like God would have to be bringing about evil, He would be responsible for it. Um, but here's the thing. I believe in that viewpoint, the morality of God is greatly assaulted. And and I think it's, it's not coming from something in the Scripture. I think it's coming from a philosophy superimposed onto Scripture. So one, God's desire is to save everyone because God has, He holds, a loving compassion for each and every person that He Himself has created. Every single person listening to this podcast, if you don't hear another single word I'm saying, understand this. God loved you no matter where you're from, no matter what you look like, no matter the color of your skin, no matter what language you speak or what is your original language, no matter what the case is. God loved you so much that he was willing to come and die on a cross for your sins so that you yourself could be saved. That's powerful if we stop and consider that. Secondly, Jesus' death provided everything necessary, everything sufficient for our salvation. 
Jesus did everything necessary so that we can be saved. Number three, Jesus died so that everyone could be saved. Notice the emphasizing the word could. But assures that everyone who positively responds to the grace of God will be saved. Jesus died so that everyone could be saved, but assures that everyone who positively responds to the grace of God will be saved. And then lastly, Mm -hmm. the atoning work of Jesus brings holistic healing to a person's being. He saves our souls. One day he's going to resurrect the body, and then eventually he's going to resurrect all of creation. Folks, if you really stop and contemplate the power of the atoning work of Christ, it is absolutely revolutionary if we stop to consider that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think there's I think there's um, other ways to understand or get that same picture that not everybody that heard Jesus's teachings are his sheep. I mean, there's, there's, for example, how many people were, were, you know, there when he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount that came and got the bread, got the, got fed, um, fish and the loaves, and, and and then turned away, and then basically he turned them away. He said, "All you're coming to me for is just, just to be fed, just the food." Yeah. And then those that kind of stuck with him, you know. Well, and I think that's one of the things you you see in that is that I think when Jesus talks about his sheep, he's talking about those who have been, you know, redeemed by God. And one of the pictures we see in the parables of Jesus is where he's talking about the uh, gospel going out. It's like the farmer casting seed and the different seed lands and different types of soil. There's there's some who hear the gospel message and, and they're, they're like the, the thorns, the cares of the world choke out the gospel that's there, or the, uh, the, the uh, stony ground, the shallow ground, and, and things of that nature. But it's, it's the ones that have hear the gospel become good soil, absorb it, receive the gospel message. Those are the ones that are saved. And so uh, I, would, I would say that the sheep in, in, that he's referencing there are talking about people from all time who, who positively respond to the gospel. But having said that, you're right, Curtis, there were some people who were following Jesus just, just to get a free meal. And when he started preaching the gospel, then they, then they turned away. You know, so yeah, they, 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 and then he, then he said, uh, when they started talking about, uh, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, they're like, ooh, this is a hard saying. What, who can understand this? And they turned away. And, and, I, and I wonder and, how many churches would actually want Jesus to be the pastor, uh, or, 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 or ministries that would want him to be the CEO or president, because everything that you hear about these days is about church growth, church growth, church growth. Well, Jesus actually turned away a lot of people. Uh, when he started preaching the gospel. Uh, Mm. So, I mean, that's something to consider. And it's not that he was wanting the people to leave, but it's just that when when the truth of God is brought, uh, some people are going to... It's like, uh, I think, I can't remember if it's Augustine or or Thomas Aquinas, but someone said that the same grace that melts butter also hardens clay. And so the grace of God is being presented... And it may have been. It may have been. But but that's the thing. The, the gospel message was out there. Christ wanted to save them, but he knew their intentions. He knew their desires. And so, I mean, that's something to consider. You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Well, we've laid some groundwork out for you folks. Um, you know, take it in and start reviewing it. Um, and if you got any questions, just uh, bop them up on, on uh, our uh, Ask the Question tab there, and we'll be glad to answer you. So, But we here at Bellator Christie want to thank you for spending that time together with us. We value your time. Our prayers that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and is a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. Until next time, Brian and I will take You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie Podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Hi, I'm Dave Baggett. I'm the director of the Center for the Foundations of Ethics, previously called the Center for Moral Apologetics, at Houston Baptist University, which in this fraught cultural moment of eroding moral foundations exists to explore the ultimate questions about ethics. What explains intrinsic human value, for example, or what accounts for authoritative moral obligations or essential human equality or basic human rights? We aim to foster a community of scholars from an array of disciplines to delve into these questions with care and rigor. In the process, we hope to highlight the evidential significance of bedrock and axiomatic moral truths when it comes to matters of the human condition and ultimate reality. In June of 2022, we will be kicking off our certificate program in moral apologetics, a four-course sequence on the history of the moral argument, a course defending moral realism, a course defining and defending theistic ethics, and a course that reveals the shortcomings of secular ethical theories. So check it out on the HBU website and at our own website, moralapologetics.com. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today.